Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyber Labs, and today we have to talk about venture capital in Wisconsin, the Midwest, and beyond. So to do that, I'm lucky to be sitting with John Nice, Executive Managing Director at Venture Investors in Mass in Wisconsin. So we're sitting here together, which is a nice treat. So John has been the, a leading VC in Mass in Wisconsin for many years, and he's currently sits on a number of boards, including Byron, Great Lakes Pharmaceuticals, TIA, Diagnostics. And he's had some great successful exits, including Third Wave, Tomotherapy, and Nimblegen. So he joined Venture Investors way back in 1985, so he has seen a lot in the venture world. So I'm definitely excited to hear more about VC in the Midwest, changes in VC and what John has learned, and what he's excited about now. So John, thanks for uh, joining us today. Glad to join you. <laughs> All right, so yeah, so John is, a, is, is quite a legend here in the Mass and, and Wisconsin area. So for the, you, for those of you on the coast, but um, so I'm definitely excited to be sitting down with him and hearing his story and what he's excited about now. Um, so before we get into kind of what you're up to now, uh, we'd love to kind of hear about your background, like where you grew up and stuff. I'm, I'm curious. And, well, I'm a, you know. I'm a Wisconsin native. I yeah. um, uh, grew up in Madison and Milwaukee. Uh, uh, it was in Madison third through fifth grade, but you know, high school years in Milwaukee. Okay. And, uh, you know, uh, started college and went to Marquette High and then started uh, going to Marquette University. And then um, middle of my college years, I transferred out to University of Utah for the quality of the education. Skiing, <laughs> yes. skiing, skiing had right. nothing to do with it. I'm sticking nice. to that. Um, but, you know, it was, it, was a, it was a great move for me to get out of town. And... Um, and then uh, right out of undergrad, I, uh, I became an entrepreneur. I got into what was a big growth industry at the time, waterbeds. Are you serious? <laughs> oh, no way. All right. So I had, a, I had a college roommate who was a really talented woodworker, and we, you know, he had made some furniture and had showed it to a retailer who wanted to buy some, and we... Started a manufacturing firm, and then we opened a couple retail stores. And oh wow! We ended up supplying product in a in a five state area, but you know it was an industry that was had its. We were making high end water bedroom furniture, <laughs> which I know is an oxymoron. So, I kind of saw where that industry was going, and. Um, Sold out of the business after six years. Oh wow! And did well enough to you know come back to you know, uh, put a little money in the bank and come back to graduate school at UW Madison, which is where I you know found my path into uh, venture capital. Gotcha. Okay. And uh, so that was back in 1985 when you yeah. Okay. And uh, did venture investors bring you back to Madison? Or were you already well, there? I was I was here in graduate school, and okay, so uh, school. and actually right. the 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 way I found the opportunity yeah. was yeah. Uh, I um, had been helping a, the wife of a friend start a business, and I pretty quickly discovered she wasn't highly motivated, and I just was I wasn't going to keep doing it. And there was a professor that I uh, was really challenged by, and I, I go in and talk to him all the time, George John. He's now up okay. at University of Minnesota, marketing professor. 
and he asked me what I was going to do that summer, and I, I, I told him I, I, I didn't know I had just made this decision I was going to stop doing what I was doing, and he, he asked me, would you be interested in venture capital? Now, this is 1985, so this is, you know, per, uh, Kleiner Perkins had a $40 million fund at that wow. time. So, you know, it was yeah. early in the industry days. But, you know, he knew I was very interested in entrepreneurial things. And I said, you know, of course I'd be interested. So he reached into his waste paper basket and he pulled out a crumpled piece of paper and unfolded it and said, here, call this guy. And it was Roger Ganser mm -hmm. who had uh, just spun... Um, what was then Madison Capital Corporation out of Madison Development. And um, he had $1, one million under management. Wow. And, uh, uh, and I joined him on a part-time basis while finishing graduate school. And then when I graduated, you know, I had the choice of going into corporate America or uh, joining this nascent venture capital firm. And there was something just really interesting and exciting about kind of uh, being able to control my own fate. Um, you know, I, I felt like, boy, if I got into a large company and I really excelled, maybe I'd move earnings a penny a share. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the whole idea of actually, you know, kind of the blue sky of, you know, trying to transfer technology out of the university system was just like too good to, too exciting to try to pass up. Interesting. And what was, so what was venture investors like when you joined? So you said a million dollar fund. How many people, was it just you It was Roger, Roger and myself. Okay, all right. Nice. It was just the two of us. We shared office space with Madison Development. Oh, you did? Okay. And, um, you know, we, um, and, and during that year while I was in graduate school, Roger raised some additional money and then he wanted me to join him at the end. And we went out and pitched, um, our investors and we actually managed to increase it to six million oh, okay. by the time I committed and ultimately it was about seven and a half million still tiny yeah, yeah. by today's uh, scale and you know we had this idea that we uh, we could do things spinning out of the university here we were in this you know backyard of this incredible research we thought oh we, mm. we should be able to find opportunities here uh, but candidly, Wharf wasn't interested in licensing to startups at the time. They wanted to license to the large corporations that had the financial wherewithal to take a technology to its huh. full potential. And, and Wharf is part of the University of Well, it's, just, it's like the private licensing entity of the University of Wisconsin. Right. I don't, yeah, anyway, sorry. Go ahead. But yeah, private, yeah. private foundation, but it's essentially the licensing yeah, office yeah. for the university. So, you know, we started doing deals around the state, but, it, you yeah. know, we couldn't do uh, tech transfer deals. And that didn't change until 1992 when we did the first deal wow. uh, where Wharf agreed to accept equity in lieu of an upfront licensing fee, and that was uh, third wave technologies. Well, that worked out. It was a wild ride with that company over the yes. years, but it, yes, it did work out in the long haul. We should come back to third wave. That's company. probably a good story. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. All right, and who were some of your initial investors into the fund? Well, you know, we, we, so we had some help. Roger teamed up with a recently retired president of what was then the first Wisconsin bank, okay. now U.S. Bank, um, uh, first Wisconsin Bank of Madison, and Ross Schleck, basically helped Roger go around to the, you know, the corporate community mm -hmm. 
to encourage them to get behind this. So it was kind of the good old boy network, this is good for the community kind of pitch. So the early investors, well, the first investor was Madison Development Corp. Oh. They seeded it. Uh, Roger was president of it at the time. And then um, American Family, uh, first Wisconsin Bank, uh, Madison Gas and Electric, um, banks that don't exist anymore, like Valley Bank. Um, ah, nice. Uh, the old M&I Bank uh, invested. Uh, Nicolay Instrument Corporation, which you know is part of Thermo Fisher now. Uh, so it was really, you know, we had, um, and we raised it as a corporation. The idea was an evergreen fund, um, and everybody kind of chipped in. What was interesting years later is when we we finally had our first really big successes, and we started, um, we decided at one point to change our name to Venture Investors of Wisconsin because Madison Capital seemed too parochial. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and... Um, so we changed our name, and then um, when we sent out our first dividend checks after a big success story, we got a few calls from some of these early investors of, who are you and why are you <laughs> no. sending us money? They just forgot about it. <laughs> well, I, I think a lot of them, they, they, when they, when they wrote that first yeah. check, they thought, it, they thought of it like, it's, hey, it's a, this is a community donation. I'll never see a dime. Wow. So we surprised them. Well, yeah, what, I mean, what was it? What, how did these initial investors look at you when you started pitching them? Because, you know, VC was a pretty new, a nascent investment class. Was it like a, a tough pitch? Or did you have to go to lots of people or what to, in order to get them? Do you remember? Or? Well, yeah, you know, I mean, it was, um, yeah, it was a tough pitch because, yeah. I, mean, I mean, a lot of people didn't even know what venture capital <laughs> right. was. You know, I mean, the industry really was almost non-existent before... Uh, 1978, and, and what changed in 78 was the um, there was an a Department of Labor ruling on ERISA, uh, the Employment uh, Retirement Income Security Act, that said you can use modern portfolio theory for pension funds in thinking about investments. And venture capital, while very risky on its own, not suitable for uh, <laughs> widows, <Right>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> would be, uh, you know, it actually can improve returns and reduce, reduce risk yeah. because it's a low correlation with other asset classes. So the case was this actually was a great investment for pension funds. And that Labor Department ruling opened it up for pension funds. And then not long after that, the fiduciary standards changed for foundations to invest mm -hmm. in venture capital. And so it was really the, the that is what opened up the whole industry in the early 1980s to uh, new classes of investors. And prior to that, people really didn't even know, understand what it was. Interesting. All right. And what, what, what was, uh, do you remember your first investment or one of your first investments? Uh, yeah, I try to forget that <laughs> yes. one. All right. Well, that's, that's a good story then. Like, yeah, we want to hear that. <laughs> well, I, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a 24-year-old French entrepreneur uh, who was a brilliant scientist who was really trying to develop uh, devices to aid the blind. Mm -hmm. He had a long-term vision of actually an implantable device that would restore vision. Yeah. In, the, in the shorter run, he had these 
uh, tactile devices which were using the concept of sensory substitution, uh, where essentially you would feel this stimulation, say, on your abdomen of a visual field, and your mind would interpret that as, a, a, as visual information. Um, there were a lot of things that went wrong with it, uh, yeah. some, some that are probably not suitable to share. Okay. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, he was, uh, he, he was uh, inexperienced. We had some cultural differences. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we, we all learned a lot of lessons. Yeah, I'll say one thing, you know, from the, the early years of doing this, I mean, part, part of venture capital is, you know, pattern recognition. Yeah, you know, you, yeah, yeah. You, you, you learn by doing, um, and you learn lessons the hard way. I, I do remember after a really difficult board meeting for one company that was just kind of going sideways, and the CEO had kind of effectively split the investor groups into two camps so that they couldn't agree on anything. Mm. On anything. And, um, and it was to drive his own agenda. And I, the, my co-investor said, you know, hey, you want to go out and have a beer and talk about what just happened? Right. And we're, you know, he's like, oh, you know, uh, we, we made this mistake. I'll never make that mistake again. And then, oh, we did this. And, yeah. you know, we'll never make that mistake again. And then all of a sudden he kind of looked aside and said, oh, my God. Wonder how many mistakes there are out there to be made. Yeah, yeah. endless. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, you learn, and yeah. um, and we certainly learned. And you learn that it's all about more than anything. It's about people, and understanding how to um, work with people, different types of people. Uh, work with them constructively. Persuade them. Um, make sure you're. Picking people that know their own personal strengths and weaknesses, and you sort of look for the character. You learn the characteristics you're looking for in a in a good entrepreneur. And and what, and what are those? All right. I mean, I know it's kind of a vague, but <laughs> well, no. I mean, it, it's uh, you know, there's a lot of really you know you're looking for people who are um, uh, certainly highly skilled in. Their particular yeah. discipline, so they they have that the base core of knowledge. Um, they um, have a good self assessment of their own personal strengths and sort of their gaps in their skills. Um, not a feeling like I can do it all. Mm. Um, they uh, want to surround themselves with people who are uh, as smart or smarter than themselves. Mm. They're not threatened by other views, they welcome, you know, highly skilled people around them because they're sort of comfortable in their own skin. Um, they, um, uh, they have comfort with risk, you know, they're, they're, they're um, it's not for everybody uh, as an entre entrepreneur, but, you know, they are pretty good at assessing risk and how to mitigate risk. Um, they understand the importance of cash flow, <laughs> you know, the, the, the concept right. and sort of the end game. Um, and maybe as important as anything else, they've got this fire in the belly. Yeah. You know, they have this, this attitude that, um, 
you know, I'm I'm going to knock I'm I'm going to knock down any wall in the way, yeah. and I'm going to. They're just sort of relentless right. in their pursuit of trying to proselytize uh, their story and their yeah. their mission. And how do you? And those are really good eyes. I've interviewed lots of VCs, and that was you broke it down quite nicely. Um, the last one, though, that kind of the X factor. Like, how have you learned better to recognize that? Because somebody could be. You know, in the, when you're they're engaging with you in that month of trying to raise, mo- you know, get money. They tell you everything you want to hear. Right. But then sometimes it doesn't ha- happen quite like that after that. Like, have you? Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, in, look, you, you, you look, you 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 can you can you learn to read a lot in interpersonal dynamics okay. in in those early meetings. It's not only of how are they interacting with you, how are they acting with each other. Mm-hmm. You know, if they come in as a team and you've got a person who's like if. If one member of the team says something and the CEO doesn't like, do they get the evil eye at points uh, during the meeting? Like, you know, yeah. stop. And then you, you know, it's it's a small world out there. I mean, there's one degree of separation to anybody. So, we've been doing this long enough where we have so many relationships out there. Um, you know, we we talk to people they've worked with in the past. What are they like? You know, what's and and you and you look you look for those things that are are good traits, but yeah, no, it's learning to read people and learning yeah. how to work with people. I, I've often told people that, you know, good training for venture capital would be a background in anthropology. Oh, because so every time you start working with a company or you join a board, it's like being dropped into a foreign culture. <laughs> and you have to learn the cultural norms, you have to learn the power structures, you have to learn you know, how to persuade and communicate people and, and uh, how to best operate in that, in that culture. Every board's different, every dynamic is different, and you need to have flexibility and, and know the best way to express your viewpoints and have them considered and generate the right kind of dialogue mm. in the boardroom That's uh, in every situation. Yeah, anthropology, never thought of that. That combined <laughs> psychology, maybe that's all it now. Um, can be a therapist as much sometimes as much as anything. <laughs> uh, so true. <laughs> uh, so so, would you guys, venture investors, if there's like an amazing science, amazing technology, but you just didn't sense the team was there, would you pass on that, or would you say come back later after you figure this out? X. Um. Well, look, you know, we look very early. So a lot of times there's not a complete team. Yeah, okay. Okay? And, and we don't expect there to complete be a complete team, but we do expect there to be people that have that desire to build a world-class yeah. team yeah. and seem to be open to input. So we're looking for a lot of those dynamics very early on. Are they open to it? We certainly have seen situations where it's like, this is really interesting. You know, but you know you're you 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 have the, the wrong CEO, or you have the or you don't have a CEO, yeah. or um, you know you seem to be missing the gap here, or we don't think the dollar amount you're seeking is the right dollar amount. We think you're underestimating this, and we just we try to bring in input from the outside to sort of pressure test what they're trying to do and. And and then in that process we learn are they are they open to input and are they open to modification and making their plan better you know based upon the input we can provide from from the outside. Yeah, makes sense. All right, well, and before we go too far, can you tell us a little bit about venture investors now, like funds and the sizes and 
Um, yeah, we're currently people are we're currently about. investing out of an eighty-two million dollar okay. fund. We've got uh, about two hundred million under management. Okay. Um, we have offices in Madison and Ann Arbor, um, and we have four investing partners: three here in Madison, one over in Ann Arbor, and then our CFO, and then a, a support team around that. Uh, typically, you know, we're looking around university ecosystems. Mm. I mean, we're in Madison and Ann Arbor, <laughs> you know, two, two great research universities. <clears throat> and we do, about half of our deals have been direct tech transfer deals spinning out of the universities. Uh, the rest seem to be in those ecosystems in, in large part because of the talent or the relationship with the university or the skill sets in the community and but it may not be a direct university license um, we're healthcare focused um, and typically making initial investments in the million to two million range very early on with the capacity to go six eight sometimes a little okay. bit more over time and do you uh, do you invest in the follow-on round too? Yeah, do, absolutely. Do I mean, we try to we try to be in every round. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the great um, sort of undiscussed important skill sets of a venture capitalist is, you know, when you have a fund, you've got a finite number of dollars. Yeah. And you're doing, you know, a certain number of deals, and trying to manage your reserves is critically important because um, you, you want enough money to be able to help every company. The last thing you want to be uh, doing is have a company that you really believe in, that you have a meaningful ownership stake, but they have a difficult moment and you run into you know a difficult financing, yeah. a kind of pay to play round where if you don't ante up, the, the, you know, there's punitive yeah. terms. And so you always want to manage reserves in a way where you have a capacity to do that. Equally important, though, is if you have a deal that it's, it's not going to work out, you know, trying try to uh, have the fast to fail um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, be ready to walk away from things that, you know, cl clearly aren't going to pan out. Um, but we want to be in every round, if possible, okay. un until the exit. All right, and, and what's your uh, investment process here? Like, how do you guys, as partners, decide whether or not to invest? And do people usually come to you? Or are you out there? I mean, we go to events, of course, and stuff. But the, how, yeah. how, what's a typical process for you, you know, to go from, from I meeting mean, somebody to? Mo most things are either referred to us or, you know. Uh, know about us through you know they're, they're I mean again we've been doing yeah, this for long knows, enough you know <laughs> there's everybody's got a degree of separation yeah yeah and so typically people will try to get an introduction or have yeah. have a path in or it'll be you know through somebody else um, not to say that they can't cold call us I mean we're right. open to that okay. but it, it having that introduction never hurts because it's like sort of the first yeah. reference first of gee right. you ought to take a look yes. at this <laughs> Um, and, you know, so it always starts out with a meeting and a conversation and a presentation. And, you know, I mean, we like to get some advanced material of, you know, what the heck you're doing so that, um, you know, we have a sense of is this in our space and yeah. our interest before we take a meeting. But, you know, it starts out with a, with a pitch to us. And then um, from there we try to, if, if it's 
interesting to us. We'll we'll do a little work. You know, make a few phone yeah. calls. Try to try to um, research it a little bit. Try to figure out whether everything they're saying is making sense okay. and what the competitive landscape looks like. Uh, and then from there, we'll often try to expose it. Like it initially might be one or two partners that sit in, and then kind of have a follow-up presentation to more of the team to you know get every get more of a team discussion going and then we really get into our in-depth due diligence and you know it'll it'll take us some time it's it can be a you know month or more where we're really trying to understand everything we can about a business uh, we have a great investment advisory committee some really experienced people everything from entrepreneurial CEOs to uh, scientists to uh, in the healthcare space payers and providers clinicians um, and uh, we'll reach out to them and get their feedback very early on and get their sense of you know whether what we perceive to have merit has merit we may ask one or two of them to sit in a interaction with them okay um, Ultimately, we go through a formal process of doing an internal write-up. Yeah. There's something about kind of putting together the memorandum internally that makes you consider whether there's things, oh, I haven't really done mm -hmm. my work around this. You know, you need to fill all those gaps and putting that together. And then we take it to the full investment advisory committee. And how, we, how do you are in there? You know, I mean, there's, uh, we have about 25 people but oh, it's, wow. they, they don't all show up for every meeting okay. and we particularly target certain people for certain kinds yeah. of deals yeah. and try to make sure that they're there um, and um, and then we have the company pitch to them and then we get the feedback from the committee and then there may be some follow-up due diligence based upon sort of blind spots or risks that were perceived of you know can we get comfortable with that then ultimately can we negotiate terms of investment that you know we agree on and then are we doing this alone or do we need a syndicate you know often we're working in parallel with other firms occasionally we will do some of the early work and then try to find co-investors once we've gotten to sort of a comfortable place where we you know where we think it's something we want to do uh, but then we have to make sure it's ultimately you know sufficient financing to get there so it's a it's a it's not an overnight process. No, it's a long process. And and from the, the startup and entrepreneurial side of things, have you ever have you seen kind of a pattern of where things kind of fall down or where people where they really mess up on their side? Like, do you have any recommendations for the entrepreneurs out there where you've seen over the years or they continually screw up this process, kind of the due diligence process? Well, you know, it uh, starts out with. Um, responsiveness and mm. I guess relentlessness yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay yes, yes. <laughs> you know you would be shocked yeah how many people will email a business plan in and then never do a follow-up really so at that point <laughs> what's the, what's the point of getting back to them if, right well, there is right, none no. there is none I, do you, I mean do you perp I would purposely never reply to somebody who sends me a business plan to see if they follow up just because they have well yeah, yeah. it's it's if they don't follow up i mean we're not gonna because <laughs> right. i mean the, these things are coming in like constantly yeah, yeah. so you know i mean and and to me <laughs> it's a it's a tremendous surrogate for how hard they're going to pursue a customer 
I mean, we're a customer for their securities. Mm. Okay, so to this to me is an indication of how are they going to be in terms of working towards partners or working towards other relationships. They're just going to send a blind email and then <laughs> right, let, just let see what know. happens. Yeah, <laughs> you know. So, but you know, responsiveness is key. I mean, are they are they um, you know when we ask for something are 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 they ready for the questions? Are they prepared? Do they have have they done their homework? Uh, do they have the detail? Do they have third parties they can refer us to? I mean, a lot of times they can be extraordinarily helpful in our due diligence by anticipating yeah. everything. Do they that have a data a room? They yeah. have a do they have references and contacts that they could who are of people who are already familiar with what they're trying to do that they can encourage us to contact and get feedback? I mean, we'll we'll develop our own sources, but they can really speed us along. And then you know, I mean, um, because it's such a lengthy process. I mean, this whole interpersonal relationship we're talking about that's so important. I mean, you you know, you get to know people in the process. And um, look, we we want to we want to back people that um, are open to our input, that view us as sort of partners to help them be successful. Um, and you know, are are they receptive to that input? Are they combative? Are they you know are they you know difficult? And then you know you know a lot also comes when it gets to. Investment terms is yeah. You know, do they want twenty million valuation when they're worth five <laughs> or whatever? Exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, interesting. All right, and I'm curious, kind of looking back, and like I was going to ask about like one of your successes to tell us. You know, we mentioned like third wave, and I'm really interested in the ups and especially the downs. And so a little different question is, uh, what you know, you've seen companies go up and down and then come back and have a huge success. Like, how do you know when to call it quits? Like. I, have you seen? I'm sure you've seen some successes that have gotten pretty near failure, but for some reason they pushed through and it worked out. Where other ones you've recommended maybe they should shut down. Um, yeah. But, well, look, it's you know. Um, and there's no maybe you can give an example or because it's no like every different situation is different. I know. <laughs> you know. Well, our industry we like we like to bury our dead quietly. <laughs> yeah. You know. It's uh, All right, fair enough. Uh, but it you know I mean. Um, look, you know, when someone starts a company, um, you know, they're really passionate about what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And they are putting a lot personally on their line. They, they often feel they're putting their personal reputation on the line. They've put a lot of their personal savings on the line. They're putting their time and energy in something. It's their baby, yeah. you know. and. Um, you know, it is not life or death when these things die, but sometimes it feels like it, you know, and, uh, but, you know, when it's coming to the end, I mean, our, the best thing we can do is just have direct, honest conversations about it and about how we feel about it and why we are where we are. I, I just... It goes back to the people again. and like It goes back to the people and, you know, and, and good people... Um, yeah, I mean, we we offer it as constructively as as we can, but yeah. if 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 it's not going anywhere, it's it's you know we we we've just had we have to have that honest conversation. 
but I, you, you know, it's, it's ultimately do, do, do you believe, do you believe in the science? Do you believe in the people? Do you believe in the potential still? And you, you, let's face it, there is huge asymmetry of information before you do that deal. You know, yeah, right. just, they, they, they yeah, tell yes. you what you want to hear, they, yeah. they give you what you want, they're trying to get your money, and then it's, you know... It, no, I, nothing looks it, as good from the inside. Er, everybody <laughs> in the venture industries had the experience of going to a first board meeting and going, oh my God, <laughs> what have I just learned here? I would love to hear that story, but uh, I guess we can't share uh, yeah. it, but yes. <laughs> so, um, you know, but... You know, look. The, 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 some someone told me, you know, it's it's um, it, it's a lot like that famous college dropout from UW Madison, Charles Lindbergh. You know, when <laughs> you know when he when he took off from New York to Paris, he didn't have any navigational equipment. There was no weather reporting yeah. of what he was going to run into. Uh, he he had a compass, yeah, that's and you know, and, and he had yeah. you know, and he you know made a lot of educated guesses. But you know, he got he got lost in the middle of the like around dawn as he was trying to fly across, and he thought he should be getting close to Ireland, and 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 he wasn't seeing it, and he started worrying, and then he saw a boat down there, and he he flew down towards the boat, and he. He yelled out to him, "Hey, which way to Ireland?" And uh, did he really? Have yes, 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 yes. <laughs> and the people of the boat pointed, and off he went. You know, and and that's kind of how a little company is. I, I think, um, you, you know, you 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 have to have that ability to adjust. Mm. You kind of have to have an even keel, and. Um, not get too up when good stuff happens because you know it's not the end game and not get too down when something bad happens and you got a bunch of smart people in the room and and does everybody have the attitude of like okay we hit a we had we hit a, a bump here and okay what's you know plan B what's the work we'll around us yeah, yeah. we'll figure this out sometimes it can't be figured out sometimes it's cost prohibitive to get around the other way. Sometimes you may run into a wall of intellectual property or new things emerging in the marketplace that you didn't anticipate that at the time you made your original investment. Things change, the whole world's moving quickly. But um, it is ultimately sort of that gut decision of do you continue to believe? All right, and we're running kind of out of time, but I got a couple more questions at sure. least. But, uh... So can you tell us what one of your current companies that you're, you, I know you don't play favorites, but the one that uh, might be interesting to share that you're excited about that when you're current there. Well, one that I'm on the board of yeah. that I, I'm very excited about is Thai Diagnostics in Milwaukee. It's a also medical. Thai, not T-A-I. Yeah. It's, <laughs> All right, Thai. That's okay. It's a medical college, Wisconsin spin-off. Okay. And they are focused on uh, transplant patients. For a diagnostic tool to uh, determine organ rejection, transplants the biggest risk that that patient population has is organ rejection, uh, and for many of the organs, if they lose their organ, there may not be a replacement available to them, so it could be the end of their life. Um, and, and currently, the tests, the 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 gold standard 
is biopsy. Now imagine mm -hmm. if you have a heart transplant. You go, go in with a catheter and do a snip of that heart, wow. precious heart tissue and look at it. You have problems with sampling error. You, and essentially what you're having is cell death occurring when you have a, a, a rejection start. So uh, Ty uh, is taking advantage of cell-free DNA. And when you have cells uh, die, you have a release of cell-free DNA into the blood. And of course, the donated organ has a has different DNA than the uh, organ recipient. Uh, so they've created a panel of highly variable regions of of uh, of, of the genome, uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms, and they can differentiate between donor cell-free DNA and recipient cell-free DNA. And if they get mm -hmm. a spike in donor cell-free DNA it's an indication that a rejection cascade has started. Well, that's clever. So um, they're going to launch early next year. Uh, it's Milwaukee-based. It was co-founded by a couple, uh, Mike and Aoi Mitchell. Okay. Mike is a transplant surgeon okay. at Medical College of Wisconsin. Uh, she's an MIT-trained biochemist. And, um, and then Frank Langley's our CEO, and he's spent more than a decade in the transplant market, so he understands wow. the market really well. So we're at an exciting point in time because we're about to launch uh, the test into the marketplace. So will be FDA cleared? or uh, No, it, yeah. it's going to be under the uh, Clinical Laboratory uh, Improvement Act complete. regulations. So we, we uh, built a lab, and yeah, we yeah. are uh, CLIA-CAP certified, yeah. Yeah. and uh, we are going to introduce this as a laboratory developed test under the CLIA regs okay. where uh, transplant centers will send us the blood samples, we will run the test and turn around the results in 24 hours to them. So you won't necessarily give like a diagnosis, but you'll just give them the information and they can do, or can you do that with, wait. You, you, <laughs> you, 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 they will give them the, the, the sign. Well, we, we have a pathologist uh, okay. that will do the read and make the determination gotcha. of is there is there evidence of a rejection Interesting. of that? Cool. That's a good way to go. I think a lot of companies don't probably think about that when they start this. That for a non-therapeutic, it could be an okay way to go. It but, can be. It yeah. can be a great way to get yeah. out into the marketplace yeah. early. Uh, obviously, if you go through the FDA path, you can make stronger claims yeah. in the long haul. Which you could do eventually if you want. Yes. Yeah. We have more data. We're working on. That. Yeah. Okay. All right. Good. Well, that sounds awesome. Yeah. yeah. That's really interesting. All right. And so near the end here, let's talk about a little bit about Madison and Wisconsin because that's where we're based. And uh, um, I don't know, I'm hesitant to ask this because I feel like in Madison and Wisconsin, we're always asking this question about like how can we be better, at, or you know, at BC or at entrepreneurship. But I'm curious if you have any thoughts. You know, usually they ask the entrepreneurs that and stuff, and but not always the the VC. So, um, but anyways, I I'm, from your perspective, like, you know how. Uh, are we competitive with like the coast in your opinion like Boston Silicon Valley like do we need to be training you know bringing people in or training entrepreneurs better or what would uh, everyone let, blames let, it. let's yeah. let's just start out with the fact that the reality is that we yeah. have some natural disadvantages yeah, yeah there is a reason that you know 82 percent of the venture capital is managed in three states, California, Massachusetts, wow. and New York. Yeah, yeah. And they invest 81% of what they manage in three states, yeah. California, Massachusetts, yeah. and New York. And 
there's a reason it happened in the Boston and Bay Area. You've got communities of about five million people. Uh, it's a major commercial center. You have a cluster of major research universities uh, and they're financial centers. So you have the combination of ideas, people, money, uh, commercial, right. <laughs> all in one place. Hard to compete with. Yes. Well, and <laughs> you know, in the Midwest, we created our great research universities when we were an agrarian society. So they're in places like Madison, Champaign-Urbana, East Lansing. Mm -hmm. You know, they're 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 away from the population centers, away from the commercial centers, away from the finance centers. So we have a density issue in the Midwest that we have to overcome. Um, so this. You know, challenge, you know, we, we, our ideas are competitive with anybody. Okay, yeah. You know, I mean, we look at this university, you know, it's a competing grant system to attract all those research dollars here. So on the scientific merit, you know, we're competitive. The challenge is often money, especially in healthcare. So we, we need to do, to do more to attract more capital into the state and to the region. It's a regional problem. Part of this starts with the major institutional investors and their participation in the asset class. Because if we here in Wisconsin, who believe in the greatness of this university, who believe in the potential of the scientists and their innovations on this campus. If we don't get behind them, if we don't put right. our money behind them, why we should were, anybody right, else? Right. Okay. <laughs> so it really starts with, you know, our institutions committing to support uh, this kind of activity in the state. And, and in, by institutions, I guess I should, you know, extend that to include the state of Wisconsin mm. uh, and their commitment to this asset class. I think it needs to be more meaningful. Interesting. All right. Yeah, and that, that's a whole podcast in itself, so we won't get <laughs> that. Was a, that was a good answer. Um, all right. Two, two more questions. One's pretty quick. Uh, is there any type of, you know, you're, I know you focus a lot on healthcare. Is there anything within healthcare that you're especially like reading a lot about or like really interested? Um, you know, whether it's CRISPR or, you know, whatever it might be. Is there anything that's kind of like, has you fascinated now? Or? Well, CRISPR scares me. Okay, it scares <laughs> me. All right. I like that. That's good. Well, right. you know, Let's I mean, it's, 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 it is a, uh, it's, um, it's an audacious um, change. Mm -hmm. And the ability to uh, permanently insert heritable genes is something that, you know, has to be, handled with the utmost care. Um, I think it's a powerful technology, um, and I think in the right hands it, it can uh, do great good, but at the same time, no. There's ways it could go wrong, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so yeah. that's, that's kind of, okay. and once the genie's out of the bottle and it's out there, you know, how do you, you, know, yeah. how do you, how do you deal with it? Um, no, I, I guess I would just say in a general way in healthcare, um, we're in a period of great change. Mm -hmm. There's tremendous inefficiency out there in our in our healthcare system. I mean, we're paying for it all the time. Um, I think actually under Obamacare, um, a lot of things were accelerated that were already happening in the private pay market to 
move towards value-based reimbursement. Um, I think those trends will continue. Whatever the government does, if there is any major changes in um, healthcare uh, from the government's perspective, and change creates opportunity. But I, to me, there are there there is so much opportunity to add efficiency to the system, and that can um, uh, go from anything from just moving patients to uh, uh, lower cost places of care, mm. of treatment, uh, to um, getting greater uh, uh, participation of the patients in their own well-being mm -hmm. in a meaningful way, giving them the in, empowering them with information. Um, I guess the other area to me that's just um, incredibly exciting right now is there's so much happening in cancer therapy, mm. um, and the whole um, uh, advent of immunotherapy, mm. I think, is the some of the results and impact that that has had on people's lives. It's been life-saving for, mm. for many, many people. And we are just in the earliest stages of understanding the potential of those therapies, and I think we're going to see a lot more uh, occurring over the course of the next decade. And I think that's a, a really exciting path um, and I, you know, cancer's, c cancer is, um, obviously it's many, many different diseases, you know, under this cluster of, you know, irregular cell growth. And, um, uh, I think there's, there's, um, more hope for cancer patients today than ever before, mm -hmm. uh, because oh, of great. some of the great innovations yeah. taking place. Interesting. All right. Well, yes, I'd like to hear more about that, but I think we're out of time. And the last question is, is I'm curious, what do you, uh, I think you're pretty active, but what do you like to do outside of work when you're not uh, thinking about all this stuff? Uh, well, <laughs> I'll give you two, sort of two, just right. for recreationally, yeah. I, I'm, I'm a, a really avid bicyclist. Okay. I ride 4,000 miles a year. Oh, I do a lot oh, of it commuting, you I know, okay. and, but I, we've got a place out in Blue Mountain, so it's a, it's a healthy oh, commute. You commute all in. How far is that? Twenty-seven miles. Oh, wow. That's nice. um, so you know, that's a good, <laughs> that's good day coming in and yeah. back. So I, I love, I love to bike and cross-country ski in the winter. I've done okay. twenty-six Berkeys. So I'm. Oh a, my goodness. I'm an avid skier, but I, I'm also an art lover. My wife is um, a, just a tremendous artist. Actually, she's got a solo show down at the Madison Museum of Contemporary Art right now. She's a, uh, a video installation artist. I love. The way artists think mm -hmm. and their creative process, mm -hmm. I see more similarities than differences uh, with the science, innovative scientists that I work with. Um, but the artists are a little less linear in their thinking. Um, but they both have the traits of thinking outside the box, and I love how art. Um, causes us to stop and think in ways that we don't think in a nonlinear fashion. And I think it, it's reinvigorating, uh, stimulating, and uh, we have many, many friends that are um, just great artists uh, in this community oh, yeah. and around the country. Yeah, you must, yeah. You have a fun network there with, because of your of artists, because of your wife. That's nice. Yes. That's, <laughs> 
Interesting. All right, you must have some good parties. Um, so, uh, well, I think that just about does it, unfortunately. Although I'd like to hear about your parties someday. But that's well, I, I, I live in a big church downtown, so we actually have no great way. space for parties. Yeah, really, with oh. trapeze rigging, so we can have low trapeze dancers in there. So yeah, we have, Whoa. Good, parties. We have good parties. Wow. All right, next podcast we'll do a party here. <laughs> um, no, but really, John, really appreciate your time and your thoughts and your energy and the. It was awesome hearing about your story and what you're excited about. And Hey, glad to do it. I'm glad we had a chance to get together to talk. Definitely. And, uh, and thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of Flyover Labs. As always, I definitely appreciate it. And we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Bye, everyone.